We're in Mark 13. If you've got a Bible with you and you want to open it up to that, if it's your first uh, Sunday with us, we've been, I think this is week 12, it's maybe week 13 uh, of the series of Mark. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and I've got four chapters left and four Sundays to do it in. And so today we're, we're looking at the 13th chapter of Mark. This is a chapter known as the Olivet Discourse. And it's known as that because it's given on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And it's this long section of teaching. Mark doesn't have a lot of teaching. It's all event-driven. And so it's, it's unusual for Mark to have this long section of teaching. Its parallel passage is uh, Matthew chapter 24. But in my study Bible, NIV study Bible, it titles this section as Destruction of the Temple and Signs of End Times. And so i kind of been teasing that just a little bit through my email and Facebook posts, like we're talking about end times today. But actually, this passage, I believe, is one of the most misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misapplied passages in the gospel. And you say, well, why? Well, for the same reason that any passage of Scripture is misinterpreted, misapplied, or misunderstood. Context. Context matters. You cannot divorce a text from its historical setting and its historical context because if you do, you're going to be really tempted to apply our current context and our current setting to it and to overlay our context over the words and you end up with all sorts of weird interpretations. I'll give you an example. In Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 8, we can read. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Well, it, you know... Read that text, starting in verse 5. It sure sounds like a, an end times text. And the NIV said it was, you know, about the end times. So it sounds like Jesus is talking about the end of the world here. And he's given us some predictions of the end of the world. And it's very easy to understand what he's saying. I'll break it down for you. Verse 6. Watch that no one deceives you. The deceiver is likely someone in the U.S. Congress or possibly a president. I'm not exactly sure who. It may be the Speaker of the House because he came out of nowhere, right? Do you know who the Speaker of the House is? Did you ever know? He came, but it's probably not him. It's most likely President Biden. Or those of us that study prophecy think that it could be that the, the deceiver has not arisen yet. Like Biden's not going to run for office. Michelle's going to run. Barack's going to be running things behind the scenes. He could be the deceiver. It fits right here in verse 6. So it's, this is most likely talking about a U.S. president. Uh, verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, well, that, I mean, that's obvious. That's the Russian invasion of Ukraine or it's the Israel-Hamas war. I mean, it, the Israel-Hamas doesn't fit in that Hamas is not really a nation, but it is kingdom versus kingdom. And there are rumors that Iran is going to enter and there's rumor that Lebanon is going to enter. And so all you got, I mean, turn on the news and it's right there. Exactly what Jesus said. He's talking exactly about the events that are unfolding right before our eyes. And then earthquakes. You remember there was a major earthquake in Turkey in February of this year? 
And in the last three months, there's been one earthquake a month. Uh, Morocco, Afghanistan, and Nepal, one earthquake a month. You think that's a coincidence? Because Jesus predicted that earthquakes would be the, a sign of the end of the world. And famine, if you want to research, uh, Google global food shortage 2023 if you want to see famine. All of this is not a coincidence. These are si- this is everything Jesus predicted in Mark 13. It's unfolding right before our eyes. And I predict that the world will end sometime in late 2024 or early 2025. Either late 2024, after the presidential election, or maybe at the presidential election, or early 2025. Because if you fast forward it, in February of 2025, it'll be 24 months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And if you divide 24 by 2, you get 12. And 12 is a biblical number. Or it could be March because it'd be 7 months since the Israel harassed more. And, and uh, 7 is a biblical number as well. And I lay all this out in a book that's coming out next month about end times. And if you will join my ministry and become a monthly subscriber, I will send you daily email updates about when this is going to happen and how all this fits within exactly what Jesus was talking about. Now you're laughing and that makes me feel good that you're laughing because you know I'm not serious. Okay, I'm hoping nobody walked in late uh, to, the, to the message or nobody tuned in late because I... I Teased it on Facebook. Let's see what he says. Now, whoa. Um, And I'm hoping nobody edits the recorded version of this video and like says, here's what this pastor says. Because all of that is an example of how not to interpret scripture. Not to interpret. You can't divorce a text from its historical context. Especially when it is prophetic or apocalyptic in nature, which is exactly what this text is. Even then, even with prophetic text, text, even with apocalyptic text, they must be rooted in their historical context. We have to understand what is Mark trying to say to this original audience before we try to apply it to our day. The text can never mean to us what it never meant to them. That's one of the first rules of biblical uh, exegesis. Now, just out of curiosity... I googled um, failed predictions of the end of the world. And Wikipedia's got a list if you want to read through it. There's 178 events on it. And that's only the ones that were prominent enough that they made the list. I mean, it happens, you know, dozens of times. It happens all the time if you're following social media. Um, Most of them, though this is what was interesting to me, most of them were in the 20th and 21st century. And it may just be because we're more aware of them. In the, in the age of, you know, mass media. But um, it, was, it was all kinds of people on the list. Like there's, there's prominent evangelical leaders, Pat Robertson and Chuck Smith were on that list. And then there's famous cult leaders like Jim Jones and, and Charles Manson. Uh, Harold Camping, if you remember his name from a few years ago, uh, he's on there five times. He made five different predictions about the end of the world and each one of them uh, failed. He's since passed. There's a guy named Hal Lindsey on the list um, I think he's on there five times too, and he was the author of the late great Planet Earth, which a lot of people say this book, over 15 million copies sold, this book uh, fueled our modern interest in the apocalypse, along with uh, this book right here. Al Lindsay's still at it, by the way. Uh, the, the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. You know the guy, Dallas Jenkins, that's doing the Chosen series? That's his dad, Jerry. And so... Uh, you know, the Left Behind series kind of fueled this modern fascination with the apocalypse. I read every one of these books. I think there's 12 of them. I read every one of them. Um, I didn't agree with the theology, 
I kind of liked the writing for the first two or three books, but then after that, I didn't even like the writing. But I'm one of these people that when I start a book or a series, I, I got to finish. The they, psychologists call that a sunk cost fallacy. Uh, I, I apply that to every book I read. So I was like, well, I've already invested this much time. I might as well see how it ends. But uh, this kind of prompted a lot of ideas and made the apocalypse a popular uh, idea as well. And the point is, throughout human history, we have taken the idea of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and, and apply, it, it applies to every generation. In every generation, you can go and say, well, that's the war Jesus is talking about. That's the earthquake Jesus is talking about. That's the conflict Jesus is talking about. That's the deceiver that Jesus is talking about because they all seem to fit the narrative. All you got to do right now, if you Google Israel and end times, there's all sorts of articles about that. Even though this is the 16th war that Israel's been engaged with since it became a modern uh, nation in 1948. And I'm a little hesitant to equate the modern state of Israel to the ancient Israel that we read about in Scripture. But a lot of people do, and we get all sorts of predictions about when the world is going to end. So my, my task today, though, is not to predict the end of the world. My task today is to try to interpret what Jesus is saying in Mark 13. And I'll go ahead and confess to you at the beginning, not all of it's super clear. Right? Not all of it is super clear. But in Mark 13, if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying in Mark 13, then what we have to do is set it in its context. Where was Jesus in Mark 12? Jesus was in the temple in Mark 12. He cleansed the temple as, as a symbol that the time for the temple was coming to an end. He cursed the fig tree as an acted out parable that the time for the temple is coming to an end. He told the story of the parable of the tenants as a, as a sign that the time for the temple was coming to an end. And in Mark um, 13, Jesus is leaving the temple, and here's what happens. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's a rather dramatic prediction, but it fits everything. In 12, he wasn't super clear. In chapter 12, you know, we see with the benefit of hindsight, we understand what was going on with the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree and the parable of the tenants. Now, it's clear to the Pharisees, the parable of the tenants. But here the disciples say, look at this, look at this massive building. Look at, these, look at this, how magnificent this is. And Jesus predicts that it will fall. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? When will what things happen? When will the fall of the temple happen? When will the destruction of the temple happen? They've asked him a specific question. He's only answering this for four of his disciples. One of them was a major influence on the Gospel of Mark. But he's answering this for these, these four disciples as when the destruction of the temple will take place. Then he says this, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. What's he talking about? Well, he's answering a specific question about the destruction of the temple. They asked him, what will be the signs that these things, what, will, what signs will be that this is coming? And Jesus is answering specifically their question. He's talking about the coming destruction of the temple. It fits his prediction and it fits the specific question. And he gives them signs that are fairly generic. 
like you read that and go, well, what's he talking about? These, these could be applied to, to any day and time. I mean, how do they know which war is the war he's talking about and which nation, rising his nation, is the one he's talking about and which earthquake is the one he's talking about? They don't. We don't. I, I, it's, it's possible that he's being intentionally vague in answering this because his main objective, his main concern is not that they know the signs, but that they be prepared for what's coming. Because if you read the rest of the text, that's what he talks about. In, in verse 9, he says, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On the account of me, you will stand before the governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must be first preached to all nations. You can read about that happening in the book of Acts. That many of them are, are being persecuted for their faith. And they're standing before governors and defending uh, Jesus. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he's resurrected from the dead. Uh, verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father a child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Now, why would... Is Jesus saying let the reader understand? Or is Mark saying let the reader understand? We don't know, but it's a reference that that's kind of hard to understand. Okay, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out of it. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now, we get to this part of the text and people start going, oh yeah, but that sounds like end times right there, doesn't it? The abomination that causes desolation. I mean, that... He's starting to use apocalyptic uh, language here. And it, and it sounds like maybe, you know, like there's, there's a difference here. But I'll ask this. If he's talking about end times, why would he tell them to flee? If he's coming back, why would he tell his disciples to flee? And what difference would it make uh, if it happened in the winter? And what difference would it make if women were nursing or pregnant? You know, it, I, I think he's still talking about the destruction of the temple here. And the, the abomination that causes desolation is a reference to the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, uh, they erected a pagan altar on the sacred altar of God. In the temple, a pagan altar replaced the sacred altar of God. And it was the fall of the temple. I think it was 5087 B.C. I should have wrote that down. But that was the fall of the temple. It happens again in 70 A.D. A few years after Jesus predicted. It happens in 70 A.D. And so we know that in 70 A.D., Rome came in, overthrew the temple... And there was an abomination that causes desolation that occurred in 70 A.D. because a pagan altar was placed in place of the, the sacred altar uh, in the temple. Uh, there's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who writes about this time. And he, what he describes is real similar to what happened in, in Mark 13. That there was the, the four or five years before the destruction of the temple, there were all these people that rose up that said, I'm the Messiah or I'm the deliverer and, I, and nothing ever came of it. But then he describes this terrible time that took place when the temple was uh, destroyed. The city was burnt. All the stones were torn down Jesus, just as Jesus said they would be. Um, they, they crucified so many people in Jerusalem in that day that the Romans ran out of wood. Uh, to provide crosses for the crucifixions that were taking place. Uh, people resorted to cannibalism. It was such a terrible time that the only way to describe it is with 
apocalyptic language. In those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. I think he's still talking about the temple here. I mean, we're real tempted. We want to go into it and say, yeah, 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 but that, boy, that sounds like the second coming. It sounds like this because that's, we're just conditioned to read it that way. But I think he's still talking about the destruction of the temple. There's only one verse in here that throws us off and makes us try to rethink everything about Mark 13. And it's kind of important because uh, it, it, it's, the, it's the one verse that changes the way we interpret the whole chapter and pull it out of its context. It's this one right here, verse 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and to the ends of the heaven. So, so we read it. I mean, Mark makes sure we know the context. So we, we see the context. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's answering a question about the destruction of the temple. Everything up until verse 26 fits the destruction of the temple. And then we get here and people go, aha, see, it's about the second coming. I told you it was about the second coming. Everything Jesus said was about the second coming. <sighs> it's just one problem. You keep reading. I'm going to skip down. I don't want to read the whole thing to you. But you skip down to verse 30 and Jesus says this. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So what do you do with that? (laughs) Is he talking about the second coming or is he talking about the destruction of the temple? Because it sounds like the destruction of the temple up until he says the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Now it sounds like the second coming. But then he says, none of you, speaking to the disciples, none of you are going to pass away until all this happens. So what's he talking about? Four options. Number one, Jesus got it wrong. It's not a very good option, is it? It's not like, like he's talking about the second coming. He says this generation will not pass away until this happens. That generation did pass away. Jesus hadn't come back. He's wrong. I'm going to rule that out as a, as a viable option. I don't think he's wrong here. Second option, this generation must refer to our generation. So this generation must in some sense refer to us because Jesus is not back yet. And that means none of this stuff has happened yet. And therefore, I can apply this to the Russian-Ukrainian war. And I can apply this to Israel-Hamas. And I can apply this to U.S. politics. How arrogant of us to think (laughs) that Jesus is talking about U.S. politicians in Mark 13. But, I mean, that's, you know, I can apply this to current events because this generation must refer to our generation. And I think I've already made it clear I don't buy this interpretation either, right? I don't think that's a good option because it ignores historical context and it puts us at the center of the text. The text is about us, not about Jesus and what he's saying. So I don't think this is a good option. This one's not a bad option. This generation must refer to their generation. So Jesus is talking to the disciples' generation and he's telling them that you will not pass away until all this happens. That means that everything Jesus says in Mark 13 is about the destruction of the temple, even the reference to the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So you got to understand that as a metaphorical reference to Jesus being vindicated because when the temple is destroyed, the disciples will look back and remember Jesus predicted that very thing when he entered Jerusalem before his death. Jesus told us this was going to happen. So the Son of Man coming on the cloud is a metaphorical, not a literal reference. That's one option. The other option is this. Jesus must be speaking of two different events here. The destruction of the temple and the second coming. So he's kind of bouncing back and forth between the two. And it's not always clear. 
So the first 25 verses, it's clearly about the destruction of the temple, but there's some stuff mixed in there about the second coming, and, and we can't really tell exactly what it is. And I'll tell you this. Option four is probably the most accepted interpretation among uh, the non-prophetic folks. Me, I'm non-prophetic. You know, so, it's, uh, so that's probably the most accepted interpretation, that Jesus is probably talking about the temple and in times, and he kind of mixes it a little bit, and we can't really tell exactly where it is, but you know, when he says son of man, that's clearly about second coming, and he says this generation, that's clearly about the destruction of the temple, and so that, you know, that's the widely interpreted, uh, or the wi- most widely accepted interpretation. I kind of like number three, but if, if you understand the way I interpret Revelation and those things, I, I kind of like, I listen, lean so heavy on historical context that I, I, I find myself coming down there a lot. But here's what I want you to understand. <clears throat> if your head's spinning right now, it's on purpose. And if you're going, why is this so hard to understand? <laughs> I thought the Bible, don't you always say the Bible is easy to understand? The, the, the main message of the Bible is easy to understand. If you've read Mark up until verse 13 and haven't caught that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, right? I mean, that's pretty easy to understand. He, he's told, he's forgiven sins, he's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's telling stories about it. He's even said, I'm, you know, I mean, Mark, or Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Like, and, like we, all through it, that's clear. But there are parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand. There are. This is one of them. Anytime we start getting into apocalyptic literature, that's a literature that we are not familiar with. We don't use that type of literature much anymore. And uh, there are parts that are difficult to understand. I, I struggle to understand uh, some of what he says in Mark 13, and I struggle to understand what he says in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24. The whole book of Revelation is hard to understand because it's apocalyptic literature. Daniel, same thing. We know Daniel in the lion's den. That's easy to explain. But the book of Daniel, it's a little wild. But that doesn't make the Bible any less reliable or trustworthy. The fact that I stumble across a passage while I'm studying Jesus and Jesus says some stuff that I don't understand, I don't say, well, if I don't understand it, then uh, clearly uh, this Bible can't be trusted. Clearly these words of Jesus can't be trusted. In my opinion, they can be trusted even more. Because I think if the disciples were trying to make all this up, they would have left this part out. I think the reason they included it is because he said it. And I don't even know if they understood exactly what he was saying. But it was like he said it. And, and, and I think it's possible, and this is, this is just a theory, it's possible that Jesus was being intentionally vague in terms of the signs because his main concern was not to give us a timetable of when all these things were going to happen, whether we're talking about the destruction of the temple or we're talking about the end of time. His purpose was not, it, this, the Bible's not like a puzzle piece that you've got to have some wise person to piece together for you so that you understand exactly when it ends. It's, that's, that's not, it's not a, there's not some code, some secret code in here. And if you've got the secret decoder from Pastor so-and-so, you can figure it out. That, that's, that's not his main concern. His main concern is be prepared. And he's not vague about that. Here's the way he ends the text. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. 
It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servant in charge, each with their assigned task, and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Now, you've read the rest of the Bible, so I'm going to go ahead and spoil this one for you. You remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember what the disciples did? They were sleeping. (laughs) I mean, this is what, like Jesus is saying, watch, be ready, be prepared. Even if you interpret this as the destruction of the temple, there's still a message here because what happened to the temple is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what will eventually happen to the entire world. The entire world will be judged in the way that the temple was judged. And you will not know the signs. And you will not know when it's going to happen. It will come like a thief in the night. You will have no idea. There's no way to put a date on it. There's no way to put a time on it. It will happen at any time when you least expect it. And so Jesus, the clearest words Jesus speaks in, in chapter 13 is, watch, be on your guard. He said, well, be prepared. And you're like, well, how do I do that? Well, at the most basic level, if you've never confessed Jesus as your Savior, confess Jesus as your Savior and surrender yourself to baptism. So that when the day comes, you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be anxious about what's going to happen at the end of time or what's going to happen if I suddenly die and pass from this earth. You don't have to be anxious about that because you know that your life is built upon the foundation of Jesus. And he will never let us down. That's what it means at the most basic level. That's what it means to be prepared. To do what Stephen did at, at the beginning, you saw that, that baptism video, that at the most basic level is saying, I want to surrender my life to Jesus so that I can be prepared whenever this happens. And so Jesus is not concerned about when it happens and what exactly is going to happen. It's all concerned about the preparedness of our hearts. I want to uh, say a word of prayer about it, and I'm going to ask the team to come back out, and we're going to sing a song about it. So we'll close with that song. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that you would help us, um, help us to to be prepared, and it's so difficult for us because uh, the less we know about something, um, the more anxious we get and the more nervous we get. When we are in control, we feel more prepared. But when it comes to, to your return, when it comes to the, to the end of this world, or when it comes to the end of our time on this world, we, we are not in control of those things. And we can only put our trust in you as, uh, as our Lord and Savior and trust that you will never fail us and you will never let us down. And so I pray you help us. If there's anybody in the room listening or if there's anybody online that haven't done that, I pray that they will reach out to somebody and say, hey, I'm ready to give my life to Christ. I'm ready to be baptized. You know, what do I need to do? What's the next step? And, uh, and we'll set a time. So I, I pray that, that if somebody hasn't done that, that they will do that. And for those of us in this room or those listening online who already have, and we've already given our lives over to you, help us to rest in the assurances that uh, you'll never let us down. And help us to have a peace, a sense of calm and peace when it comes to things like we're talking about this morning.
And I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.